made the noise. I already did it. That was the test, but we... Okay, we're good to go now. Welcome to the Mormons and Drugs podcast, a weekly podcast wherein I discuss the shockingly frequent intersections of Mormonism, magic, and drugs. Joining me is my co-host and producer, Moth Dula, and then, of course, uh, Morticia, the podcasting kitty. She's asleep, as always. Talking in her sleep. Does Moth Dula meow like a kitty? No, she's a moth. Oh, well, Morticia the Podcasting Kitty is uh, asleep. <laughs> I feel like for the integrity of this podcast, uh, we need to keep things straight. <laughs> I Where are we at? So during the last few weeks, we've discussed the Smith family in depth. The middle son of this family, Joseph Smith Jr., being the alleged prophet and patriarch of the Mormon religion. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've covered the union of Lucy Mack and Joseph Smith Sr., along with the occult Christian worldview of the early 18th and 19th century America. Uh, we hit the family's interests and occult toolkit related to that antebellum worldview. Uh, also, the financial disaster that left the young family in destitution and the traumatic leg injury at a young age, uh, and how all of those experiences and how that upbringing shaped Joseph Smith Jr. into the teenage magical uh, occultist that he was. Lady killer? Charmer? Uh, the lady killer comes in later, and given what ensues, I don't know if that's uh, <laughs> the best way to describe him. <laughs> So this week, uh, we're going to dive deeper into Joseph's teenage career as a money digger and scryer, and the sort of things that young Joe liked to get up to around his home in 1820s Palmyra, Manchester. Uh, it's in New York. Uh, I should note here that this is where the narrative will begin to get confusing and contradictive. Uh, you see, Joseph evolved his biographical narrative several times throughout his career as a modern prophet in order to combat increasing skepticism from his skeptics and uh, believing parishioners alike regarding theological and historical anachronisms uh, found in the religion. There seems to be a point before Joe found religion and his Golden Bible, which later became known as the Book of Mormon, uh, where Joe and the Smith family openly operate as magicians uh, with the same sincerity and devotion that they did while working as school teachers and farmhands. After the court trial that we'll discuss in the next episode, we'll move into phase two of Joseph's narrative, uh, which is compounded furthermore by the official foundation of Mormonism in 1830. That's where he begins to re-evaluate his narrative. Um, phase three, the time he does it the third time, begins approximately in like 1834. And phase four, in the early 1840s, just before his death by gunfight in 1844. <laughs> Are you following? No. <laughs> okay, so he he reinvents his own like biography his own what do you mean personal reinvent? History. he just decides to change everything over again is he, that what he you're just, saying yeah he reinvents himself cool. every few years oh, um well, i do that the first time is when he <laughs> the first time is like when he starts the church the second time is uh, like four years after that in 1834 then Around the early 1840s and just before his death in 44, he does it again. And then after about a dozen different phases of this after his death, 
is where you eventually fall down into like the modern day where the average Mormon missionary knows little to nothing about any of this and is reciting a highly propagandized version of history that has little, if anything, to do with actual history. Like most religion. Yeah, like most religion. But uh, So you, you see the same problem in comic books. Uh, it's called a retcon. Mm. It's, it's like when one author retroactively changes a canonized narrative uh, or like continuity. That's where like based on what era or writer or artist you're talking about, nerds can quickly devolve into like semantic battles about superhero origins or power levels or storylines, you know, yada, yeah. yada, yada. Um, Joe and his reputation established the tone of the storylines for phase one. And that's, I'm, I'm going to start there to avoid any confusion for the audience and for myself, frankly. Okay. <laughs> so as such, I will not discuss the so-called first vision, which happened in 1820, wherein he claims to have communed with Jesus Christ and the Abrahamic God at the age of about 14. That's not part of the first phase? It is. I'm not going to discuss it. I'm just going to kind of glaze over it because can, this is a retcon. Can I ask why? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, oh, okay. <laughs> so this is, I'm going to skip over this because it's a retcon that was added into Joseph Smith's biography somewhere around phase three or four at the ah, very earliest. Okay. There are so many different contradicting versions of this first vision. There's like upwards of... 12 different, very different versions of this one vision. Hmm. And it seems to have just been written into his history long after. And m m kind of, so in, like, in fact, most saints or Mormons are totally unaware of the first vision until after Smith's death. Like mo while it started to be circulated before he died, uh, they didn't officially canonize it into like church history until way after his death. So most people didn't even know the first vision happened in the beginning, in the beginning. Now everyone does. Now everybody does. Um, so yeah, meaning if you actually let one of these kids into your house, <laughs> uh, this is what they'll discuss with you. They call it the first discussion. Um, and that's like the topic of the first discussion is there's this kid who meets God and Jesus and they themselves don't know that like that's a retcon that in my opinion very likely did not happen at all. Okay. Which is why I'm skipping over it. Can't it's just wait a, to let one of these kids in my house after <laughs> we do all of this. It's fun. Um, okay. Uh, um, okay. So. So jumping yeah, to phase one. We're skipping. starting at phase one. I'm skipping the first vision, quote unquote, because With I don't Jesus really think it Abraham was the, Lincoln? <laughs> the Abrahamic God. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I don't think that was the first vision. The vision I'm going to discuss in this where he meets a like treasure guardian. Okay. That's what I think was his first vision personally. Treasure guardian. Um, so a goblin. <laughs> well, We'll get into what it was because he himself had some, there was some conflicting uh, accounts. Again, he okay. he had trouble getting his story straight all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also uh, the first first vision has very little to do with, you know, drugs. So Ugh, sounds boring. it's boring to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so again, uh, beginning in approximately 1820, as we sort of briefly mentioned at the tail of the last episode, Joe starts working for his father's group of money diggers as the scryer or seer who divined the location of buried or hidden treasures and communed with the spirit guardians of those treasures at times to like negotiate how to get the treasure out. 
So after three years of doing this, while still operating as a ceremonial magician in his burned-over district of New York, Joseph Jr. claims to have had a very remarkable dream. On September 21st of 1823, while very likely using the magical parchments that we covered last week. September 21st? Yes. It's the day before someone's birthday. (laughs) Joseph seems to have summoned an angel or a spirit for the purpose of aiding the Smith family's money-digging endeavors. Uh, This date was not so coincidentally on a full moon listed in contemporary and accessible almanacs at the time as being an auspicious night for summoning helpful spirits. And this is that uh, holiness to the Lord parchment. It's the big one with all the fun symbols on it. Uh, it's got the, the big like, star with Raphael. Okay. Yeah. That's particularly the parchment that was probably used to summon this angel. Lucy Mack, in her autobiography, stated that the family stayed up late into that Sunday night discussing the topic of religion and the state of modern faiths found around the earth. Not surprisingly for a 14-year-old, she also noted that Joe Jr. seemed to be withdrawn, especially, you know, such an exciting topic of conversation with your parents. I'm sure it was probably talking about every night. Yeah. Um, So the accounts given by the Smith family about this make it seem as though that the dream we're, we're about to discuss happened without their planning or knowledge. But given the family's inclinations and the fact that we have this magical parchment, which is most auspiciously used on that same night, it seems unlikely that all of the family was totally unaware that this dream or vision was coming. Um, in fact, as the newspaper man Abner Cole that we love so much <laughs> uh, once reflected in his paper, The Reflector, quote, at a time when money-digging ardor was somewhat abated, the elder Smith declared that his son Joe had seen a spirit, which he then described as a little old man with a long beard, and was informed that he, Joe, under certain circumstances, eventually should obtain great treasures, and that in due time he, the spirit, would furnish him, Joe, with a book which would give an account of the ancient inhabitants antediluvians of this country, and where they had deposited their substance consisting of costly furniture, etc. (laughs) At the approach of the great deluge, had uh, meaning the great flood with Noah, which had ever since that time remained secure in his The Spirit's Charge, in large and spacious chambers, in sundry places this in this vicinity, and in tidings corresponded precisely with revelations made to and predictions made by Elder Smith a number of years before, unquote. So at this time, there's roughly some 30 different published accounts uh, of people finding lost mines or treasure through dreams or visions in this particular area. Really? So this is a big thing that's happening at the time. It's like a meme, if you will. Uh, which speaks to the you know perceived reality or possibility of such a thing actually happening for you, like if you're into these activities. Mm-hmm. And the uh, this idea of Smith Seniors that he would find uh, such a treasure seemed, to me at least, to be a genuine belief of his and one that Joe Jr. seems to have capitalized on. So given that Joseph Sr. likely helped furnish young Joseph Jr. with this magical parchment for summoning spirits used for finding buried treasure, and his belief that they could and would find that treasure, I think it's safe to speculate that at the very least, Smith Sr. was in on this operation that happened this night. So he at least knew this was coming, if not the whole family, in my opinion. Yeah. So, so finally, I'll, I'll cover this, 
this long teased dream at this point. Uh, and I'll try and comment, uh, or critique on the retcons that are found in this visionary account. Cause, okay. uh, this, this comes from Joseph's own words. But again, this was written like in phase three, like 14 or 15 years after this happened. And he omits a lot and he kind of, <laughs> he shades things a little differently. Also, uh, as a side note, the following account from Joseph Jr. is one of those individual visionary experiences I've mentioned, so I won't speculate too far as to whether or not drugs or occult potions or whatever were used to aid this summoning operation, but its plausibility, if not its probability, is noteworthy. So <laughs> his could have helped, but who knows? Uh, the following account is taken from Joseph's own words about that vision uh, that night. On September 21st, 1823, after retiring to bed, while I was thus in the act of calling upon God, that's where I'll stop the first time. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> he didn't seem to have been calling on God. He was calling on a specific treasure guardian spirit or one of the three spirits on that parchment that were likely being used to aid them. And uh, what consists of calling on is what I'm curious about. Yeah. Yeah. Let's. So anyway, uh, let's, uh, in his words, calling on God, mm -hmm. uh, maybe using the name of God to summon treasure guardians. Maybe yeah. that's what he meant. Yeah. Um, anyway, quote, I discovered a light appearing in my room, which continued to increase until the room was lighter than at noonday, when immediately a personage appeared at my bedside, standing in the air, for his feet did not touch the floor. His whole person was glorious beyond description, and his countenance truly like lightning. The room was exceedingly light, but not so very bright as immediately around his person. He called me by name and said unto me that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God to me, and that his name was Moroni. That's where I'm going to stop for the second time. <laughs> so, originally when he went around telling people this, uh -huh. this was a, just a treasure guardian. Um, and as we'll see in the next episode and further down the road this wasn't the first time he said that a resurrected like native american had visited him how do you know it's <laughs> or a, native the american? spirit we'll get to that in a minute okay. uh but so originally it was a spirit okay and then for the first like phase one phase two of the church it was nephi who is the author of the first book of the book of mormon so the book of mormon is split up into books like the bible mm -hmm. nephi is the guy who writes the first few books Okay. Moroni is the guy who writes one of the last books and apparently is the one who buries the, the, the Book of Mormon for Joseph Smith to find. Ah. So when Joseph Smith originally goes around, he tells people it's a spirit. It's a treasure guardian. Then after a few years, he, he switches to the religion thing and he starts telling people that it was Nephi. And then after a few years in phase three or four, people start to notice like, hey, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense that this guy who randomly started the book was guarding the thing and talking to you when the guy who buried the book, that make that makes sense from like an occult perspective. So he changed it to Moroni in like phase three, phase four. Does that make okay. sense? So, so this person who appeared to him on this night was originally a spirit. Then he described it for almost a decade as Nephi. Then he started describing it as Moroni. Mormons today would recognize Moroni. Moroni right. is the gold guy that has the trumpet on the top of their oh, temples. That's Moroni. Okay. That's the guy who appeared to him and was like, God's calling you. Okay. So, f <laughs> again, this account was from phase three or phase four when he retconned it to be Moroni. I thought you said he was Native American. 
he Moroni is. He's a white Native American. <laughs> we'll get to the racism stuff later, I'm too. I'm just going to point out <laughs> that the statues don't look Native American. They don't because he's a very white Aryan type Indian Indian Native anyway American. that's another that's, that's the backbone of racism that's in the Book of Mormon but we'll get to that <laughs> um, okay. anyway uh, back to the quote <laughs> um, and that his name was you know the spirit or Nephi or the Moroni <laughs> and that God had a work for me to do after this communication I saw the light in the room begin to gather immediately around the person of him who had been speaking to me and it continued to do so until the room was again left dark except just around him when instantly I saw as it were a conduit open right up into heaven and he ascended till he entirely disappeared and the room was left as it was as it had been before this heavenly light made its appearance unquote so before he like he teleports up Star Trek style, and this visit repeats itself three t- three times. So he like he teleports away, and then Joseph's like, "Oh man, that was crazy!" And then it happens again, like the a, next night, like a no, the same it, night, the, oh. just immediately afterwards, oh. like a hit replay. Just the same, like like R two D two playing. Yes, save me, Obi Wan. Save me, Obi Wan. You're my only. Like, it's just exactly, again and again, but again, three times over and over. Oh, sweet. Um, until he 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 says like this replays itself three times, which it, to me sounds like he started the operation between midnight and three o'clock. Okay. This dreamer vision has about two or three hours to repeat itself two or three times, and then he hears the crow in the morning, and he has to go do his chores. He's got a rooster. So, <laughs> um, modern Mormons will play this up as though it were a real like flesh and blood encounter with a resurrected being. When in reality, it was originally circulated as a night vision or a just outright dream that did not physically happen. Uh, remember that the Smith family lived in a tiny cabin mm-hmm. and Joe, Joe shared a room and even his bed with his brothers. So the modern Mormon idea that this physically happened and all this light, this giant laser light show happened without waking any <laughs> of his brothers up in bed is a little, you know, doesn't quite fit the actual narrative. They were passed out drunk. Well, that could have been it too. But uh, assuming that it was uh, anything, it's more likely that it was just Joe having a vision or a dream. Yeah. So Joe, the next day, after being visited a fourth time by the spirit guardian, I, I guess he like had trouble with his chores and his dad's like gets mad at him and is like, hey, just go like go do whatever you need to do. And he, <laughs> the angel comes to him and is like, why haven't you told your dad yet? <laughs> and... uh he goes and he's like, oh, fine. And he goes and tells his dad and his dad freaks out and is just like, this is a, this is the greatest thing ever. And he, Lucy Mack says his father charged him not to fail in attending strictly to the instruction which he had been given. So Joe, uh, he does this. He, he pops his, you know, trusty stone into his handy dandy hat and he scries the location of the treasure uh, that was that was revealed to him uh, by this resurrected native white Amer- <laughs> So he gave him a specific location? He told him where to find it. He told him it would it would be at this like specific hill that he knew of. So he went to the hill, popped his stone into his hat and scries the specific location of the of the treasure. Okay. Uh, and this is the Hill Camora, which actually you can go visit. The church owns it and they have a big spire there and it's like kind of creepy. It's, a big it's deal. actually it's actually a glacially formed uh, drumland, which is like, from what I understand, it's a lot of uh, sh- like shale and layers of just crap that a glacier kicked up okay. that mounded into a big hill. Oh. 
Um, and it's n- it's not a man-made earth mound with a cavernous treasure library at the site of a catastrophic, you know, one million plus casualty Native American race war, as the Book of Mormon says it is. Okay. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> this, the church owns this big hill and they won't let anybody, like, investigate it when, if it is what they say it is, we'd have to do very little research to actually figure out if, uh, you know, a million plus Native Americans fought a race war on top of this giant treasure library you huh. know what i mean yeah but anyway i, I digress uh regardless of the facts <laughs> uh joseph divines that this hill uh is the location of the mystical treasure spoken of by the spirit or nephi or moroni whatever from neighbor willard chase the same that furnished joe jr with the seer stone he loved most mm. that little brown one the one that they kept fighting over <laughs> yes okay this is a quote from him quote he repaired to the place of deposit and demanded the book, which probably means he resummoned the the angel back, which was in a stone box, unsealed, and so near the top of the ground that he could see the one end of it, and raising it up, took out the book of gold. But fearing someone might discover where he got it, he laid it down to place back the top stone as he had found it, and turning round, to his surprise, there was no book in sight. He again opened the box, and in it saw the book, and attempted to take it out, but was hindered. He saw in the box something like a toad, which soon assumed the appearance of a man, and struck him on the side of the head. What, the toad turned into a man? Mm-hmm. And then hit him? Yep. Not being discouraged at trifles, he again stooped down and <laughs> strove to take the book, when the spirit struck him again, and knocked him some three or four rods, which is, I think that's like 10, 12 feet. Jeez. Um, and hurt him prodigiously. After recovering from his fright, he inquired why he could not obtain the plates, to which the spirit made reply, because you have not obeyed your orders. Come one year from this day, unquote. So uh, when the angel or Moroni or Nephi or spirit, whatever, came to him that night and mm-hmm. showed him where to find the treasure, he specifically told him, don't let it out of your sight or out of your hands until you get it into a, like, a safe place, because this thing is so precious. And so he sat it down. And that was not a safe place right next yeah. to him. And so following in line with like traditional money digging operations, if mm-hmm. you don't follow it to the letter, the whole thing falls to shit. Right. It and moves yeah, away. Slippery treasures. Yes. Yeah. So the treasure guardian account that, you know, <laughs> he like force pushes Joe away from the treasure uh, and then magically teleports the, bi- the book back into the box due to Joe's failure to follow instructions, uh, was also verified by Joe's mother, Lucy Mack, in her manuscript history. So this is not just an account from an angry neighbor. This is somebody who actually heard this from Joe. Remember that it was at this time that young Joe was learning to captivate his uh, audiences, you know, as his mother recalled. I think we did it in the last episode, but just for... uh, the sake of argument, quote, during our evening conversations, Joseph would occasionally give us some of the most amusing recitals that could be imagined. He would describe the ancient inhabitants of this continent, their dress, mode of travel, and the animals upon which they rode, their cities, their buildings, with every particular, their mode of warfare, and also their religious worship. This he would do with as much ease, seemingly, as if he had spent his whole life among them, unquote. Joe was already telling fantastical stories about former inhabitants of the Americas. Mm -hmm. And at least publicly, he claimed some facility with uh, scrying for treasure, even though, you know, after a three-year career, this uh, he had turned up nothing. 
Uh, <laughs> so regardless, the family clearly believed Joe's account of this new treasure guardian. Uh, as Lucy then relates uh, that the family, excited by all this hubbub, finished their chores early the next day and awaited in breathless anticipation uh, an official recital of the events from Joe Jr. that evening. So apparently, again, and I think kind of boosting my idea that Smith Sr. was in on this, until this night, the next day, Joe Smith and uh, Joe Smith Jr. and Sr. were the only ones that apparently knew about this dream and then what happened on the hill. And then it seems like Joe Sr. was like, let's get the family together and tell everyone. So I think that kind of supports my idea that they were in on this the whole time together. Mm. Uh, but that's my own interpretation. So after swearing them all to apparent secrecy, uh, he tells them that the guardian demands he return in a year with his older brother, Alvin. Actually, we don't know for sure if he told them to return with Alvin, but I think it's pretty likely. Again, it's another digression I just don't need to go into. <laughs> you're not going to digress into the fact that you're not sure if they asked for Alvin? It's uns Well, we'll get to it in a minute, but we don't know for sure if Alvin knew that he needed to go get the treasure but the family does know very quickly anyway uh alvin his who is not only ecstatic at this news he's also seems to be a gifted scryer himself which may be why the treasure guardian or joseph wanted him there with him and given that alvin was like helping pay for the family's rent at that time because of all the, you know, setbacks they'd had and maybe connected with Joe Sr.'s intemperance or drinking problem and his, like, constant distraction with magic, Alvin likely stood in a place to, you know, have a very serious burden lifted off of him if this vision of Joseph's was to prove fruitful. So I think it's pretty likely that he knew about this. Unfortunately, <laughs> Alvin dies very suddenly just over a month after this from a bowel obstruction. Oh. Just like he dies suddenly and he tells Joseph like on his deathbed to be a good kid and to like follow the angel's instructions. So like on his deathbed with his dying words tells Joseph to like get this fucking treasure and get our family out of this. Mm. So we don't know if he knew for sure, but given like what he said about it and how excited he got about it, mm -hmm. I think he knew that Joseph told everybody that Alvin had to be there the next time. So this hits the family very hard, obviously, as uh, Alvin was not only the eldest son uh, and a major backbone of the family unit, he was apparently really nice and just like took care of everybody, but he was also a financial backbone as well, as yeah. we mentioned. Um, Lucy Mack recalled that after this time, the family couldn't bear to hear any more of this like treasure nonsense because it just made them all think of Alvin. Um, and this appears to kind of have quelled Joe Jr.'s, uh, at least the talk about it around his family at large, but it doesn't seem to have quelled Joe Sr.'s thirst for treasure as, uh, nearly a year after this first encounter with the spirit or, or Nephi or Moroni or whatever, uh, that Joe Sr. made some very radical decisions and public announcements. <laughs> um, so just a year later, uh, conveniently, it seems just before the appointed one year anniversary where the treasure guardian uh, told them to return with Alvin in tow, Senior puts out a, a public statement in the local paper in which he says that he and some associates have exhumed the corpse of Alvin in order to quell the local rumor that uh, he had been dissected or defiled in some way. But as far as I can tell, there weren't any such rumors actually circulating at this time. And 
it may be that this was all just a big show. At least it seems like to me, because this seems more like Joe Sr. and his gang of treasure digging buddies, you know, making an excuse to just dig up Alvin. And through sympathetic necromancy, they use a part of Alvin's corpse to satisfy the treasure guardian's instructions, which... They couldn't have just, like, put an old shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's sympathetic magic. So, like, the closer you can get to the actual thing being asked for, the better the connection. Lock so of hair. Uh, toenail well, you clipping. Know, I would, you would have think, thought. but And it may be that there was a rumor going around because maybe Joe slipped to some of his friends that this is what needed to happen. And everyone knew the Smiths were into this kind of thing. <laughs> and we're just like, hey, maybe they're going to dig up their kid. And I don't know. But yeah. the whole thing is weird. And it happens right before the 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 yearly visit. Hmm. Um, so Hairbrush. <laughs> I don't know if we, we mentioned in the last episode as well, but a bunch of these guys in the treasure digging group were actually under contract with one another, meaning that if any of them found treasure through occult means, that the rest of them were entitled to a percentage of that treasure. It was Really? Like a, it was Even like if a, they weren't there and involved? Yeah, it was like a magical co-op, so to speak. Like oh. You all work together, Aww. and if any of you find anything, you all split it. Aww. So all of them stood to gain from this operation's success. Uh, which is why I think it's kind of telling that it was just Joe Sr. and his treasure digging buddies that went up and quote unquote exhumed Alvin to quell these rumors. Uh, it sounds to me like they were all like, okay, we really need to make sure this works. <laughs> but that's again, my own speculation. So not too surprisingly, uh, the 1824 visit the next year, uh, with Joe and the treasure guardian is another failure and he's not given the access to the treasure inside this box. What? And so the Smiths returned to their usual tricks and cons for the next few years. Uh, as all of this, uh, con artistry or juggling is leading to Joe Jr.'s 1826 arrest and court trial for magically conning his neighbors. I should note a few other accounts that occurred during this time. Uh, that Joe was first learning to commune and negotiate with the spirit or, or Nephi or Moroni or whoever. Uh, one of which that suggests that maybe this whole debacle was less inspired from a carefully designed magical operation, but just maybe a random hoax that went too far. <laughs> um, so in an interview by Palmyra treasure digging friend and neighbor Peter Ingersoll, uh, quote, I'm sorry, this is a second-hand account. So this is Peter Ingersoll recounting something that Joseph told him. Okay, so, so this Joseph is, is, this is Joseph's story. This is Joseph's Someone story else's. told by Peter Ingersoll, his treasure-digging buddy and Palmyra neighbor. Quote, As I was passing yesterday across the woods, after a heavy shower of rain, I found in a hollow some beautiful white sand that had been washed up by the water. I took off my frock and tied up several quarts of it and then went home. On entering my house, I found my family at the table eating dinner. They were all anxious to know about the contents of my frock. At that moment, I, I happened to think of what I had heard about a history found in Canada called a gold Bible. And this this did happen around this time. Someone claimed to have found a gold Bible in Canada. So I, I very gravely told them it was the gold Bible. Uh, to my surprise, they were credulous enough to believe what I said. <laughs> Accordingly, I told them that I had received a commandment to let no one see it, for, says I, no man can see it with a naked eye and live. However, I offered to take out the book and show it to them, but they refused to see it and left the room. <laughs> now, said Joe, I have got the damn fools to fix and will carry out the fun. 
Notwithstanding, he told me that he had no such book and believed there never was any such book. Yet, he told me that he actually went to Willard Chase to get him to make a chest in which he might deposit his golden Bible, which we will get to later. That did actually happen. But as Chase would not do it, he made a box himself of clapboards and put into it a pillowcase and allowed people only to lift it and feel of it through the case. So kind of like a sideshow carny act mm. where you like <laughs> put your hands in a in a box and feel Does something. Does it feel like a book? Yeah, it's a book. It's a book. <laughs> so this is, again, one of his friends retelling this. Um, I guess, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, finally, just closing out today's episode, I guess I'll, I'll save the one reference to mind-altering substances for last. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh, it just ends with them getting drunk. But uh, yeah. wh- while it skips ahead a tad in the timeline, uh, it's still fun and worth consideration given everything we've just discussed. Uh, at- this takes place after the 1826 trial, which we'll be covering in next week's episode. But Joe began claiming to have uh, finally obtained possession of the treasures uh, guarded by the spirit, or Nephi or Moroni, whatever time. <laughs> but... That uh, that treasure was mainly the Book of Mormon or, uh, or the Gold Bible he was talking about. And the following scene is when Joe tried to con two of his buddies with the tale of his sacred book protected by magical forces and his, like, sideshow <laughs> act with the clapboards and, uh, like, a thing covered in a pillowcase. And so this comes from uh, Pomeroy Tucker's uh, Origin, Rise, and Progress of Mormonism from 1867. Quote, an anecdote touching this subject used to be related by William T. Hussey and Azel Vandruver. They were notorious wags and were intimately acquainted with Smith. They called as his friends at his residence and strongly import- They called as his friends at his residence and strongly import- importuned him. <laughs> I love their language. Uh, importuned him for an inspection of the golden book, offering to take upon themselves the risk of death penalty denounced. Of course, the request could not be complied with, but they were permitted to go to the chest with its owner to see where the thing was and observe its shape and size concealed under a piece of thick canvas. Smith, with his accustomed sol- solemnity and demeanor positively persisting in his refusal to uncover it hussey became impetuous and suiting his action to his word ejaculated what <laughs> well he's he uh exclaimed is a, oh. <laughs> a modern way right i love the language in this one quote <laughs> <clears throat> Suiting his, uh, his action to his word, ejaculated, Egad, I'll see the critter live or die. And stripping off the cover, a large tile brick was exhibited. Uh, but Smith's fertile imagination was equal to the emergency. He claimed that his friends had been sold by a trick of his, and treating with the customary whiskey hospitalities, the affair ended in good nature. So they called his bluff. Pulled out, messed up his joke. And- he was like, ah, I got you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I got you guys. <laughs> My dad's got some booze in the cupboard. You won't- Let's just get drunk. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but this whole, like, the, the there seems to have been a book that was about 40 to 50 pounds. And everybody seems to be describing about the same dimensions. So he clearly had, like, a prop he was using. Mm-hmm. But given the weight of the prop and the dimensions, if it were made of gold, would be like 200 pounds. 
<laughs> and people reported it was like 40 or 50 pounds. It's heavy, but I can pick it up, which is more like a tile well, brick or what isn't it just the cover that's gold? No, the whole book were plates oh, of gold. Page, oh, the pages like are three, plates. Yeah, there's like three rings binding a mm. bunch of plates of gold, and they yeah, have reformed okay. Egyptian writing yeah. all over them. And the dimensions he gives, a like a brick of gold that big would weigh about 200 pounds. Yeah, okay. Um, a few authors like Dan Vogel have put forward that he like made a fake set of um, plates out of like flattened tin, hmm. which I think, and again, that would weigh about 40, 50 pounds. Mm-hmm. And some of the people say like, uh, like Emma, his future wife talks about seeing something wrapped in cloth and, but she could like rustle the pages and they made a, they made like a scrapey sound, hmm. which gold does not do. Right. Gold doesn't make a sound when you do that kind of thing to sheets of it, but tin does. What does so, gold do? It just doesn't – she makes a – I'll have to find the, the quote, but she makes a very specific sound. She's like, it made a sound like this, which mm-hmm. is like scratchy, and it sounds like tin scraping together. Okay. But it's not something that gold does because gold is so soft. Oh. It just kind of like folds. Anyway, <laughs> long digression. But eventually, essentially, like Joe had a couple or one really good set of prop plates that he put in a box wrapped in a pillowcase and would have people touch and like, Oh, you can't look at it or treasure guardian will kill you. <laughs> and then a couple of his friends were like, dude, fuck you. <laughs> and he was like, ah, I got you. Let's go drink. So the, I don't, I do think the family believed Joe. I can't tell whether or not Joe was just pulling their leg. And this is a thing that went way too far. And he's like, wow, this works. And he just, ran with a good con when he found it or I think this is so, this is where it gets murky. It's just like, there's so much crap going on at this point that who fucking knows. There was a lot of magic and there was probably some drugs and there was a whole lot of conning going on, uh, which eventually made Mormonism. There's so many, so many layers. (laughs) So that's uh, where we'll stop today. Um, that's a good ending point for next week's episode when Joe gets arrested for all this con crap associated with his like treasure digging activities specifically. Several of his neighbors catch on and are just like, hey, you're conning my uncle. And that like he may believe you, but I don't. And I really have a problem with what you're doing. You're going to juvie. <laughs> well, they didn't have Juvie. He was I facing a <laughs> hard time, maybe in a labor camp, which <laughs> at like 16, 17 is a very serious charge. <laughs> um, and we'll get to see why under such heavy penalty, uh, Joseph made a very, very, very intelligent beeline to religion. He's like, oh, this is not magic. I am a modern prophet. Mm-hmm. You can't persecute me because I'm white and Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, again, my own interpretation. (laughs) Uh, But this is where we see a very stark turn uh, from occult money digger to I am a prophet, seer, and revelator. Mm. Um, And I think it was uh, under penalty of hard labor. (laughs) uh, Anyway. He's crafty. He's clever. He's he's crafty. And he must have been very charismatic. He was. uh, Like, seems pretty much everybody that started the church with him when he died, hated him. (laughs) Like everybody who helped him get to the point where he got eventually figured out who and what he was and 
distance themselves as much as they could. Um, a few people stood with him, but essentially anyone that I found agreed on the, that like, if he got you alone in a room, no matter how upset you were, somehow he talked you into like doing something, not just like you're, you're fine now. Ah. So a lot of the people distanced themselves from him because yeah. they knew how charismatic he was. Yeah, and it was no, like scary. Like, I can't yeah. be alone in a room with you. Yeah. I'm mad at you and I need to stay mad. Yeah. <laughs> because what you're doing is really messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like Oliver Cowdery, who I, I mentioned him and his, uh, Joe, Joe Sr. and the Cowdery's were in the, the wood scrape together. Oh, right. Um, by the end of this, Oliver Cowdery is just a, not a fan of Joseph. <laughs> and, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to why, but. Cool. Sorry, I'm just going to bring up so much about all of this. I know, keep asking questions. I'm <laughs> Alright, well, we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye.